Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. In 1848, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels published an infamous manifesto that would change the trajectory of the world through the 19th and 20th centuries. The Communist Manifesto was not merely the articulation of Marx's ideas. It was nothing short than a call to action, indeed the call for an all-out global revolution. And that revolution first took hold in Russia in 1917, but then out of Russia, that revolution spread to many countries over the next century. And when you survey these countries, um, those in Eastern Europe and, and, and China and North Korea and so forth, you will see, of course, the devastating results that have come from that infamous manifesto penned by Marx and Engels. But what's easy to miss when you look at these countries and cultures is that this is not how things always were for them. Before the invasion of the communist revolution, these countries were lovely countries with beautiful histories and stories to tell. But what communism did to all of them is overtake their culture and rewrite their histories such that what they used to be is nearly erased survived only in faint cultural echoes of the goodness of times past. This is a helpful way to understand the history of creation on a global scale. Satan entered Eden with a simple manifesto. If you will rise up against your creator, if you will eat of the fruit he told you not to eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And the rebellion born from that simple manifesto has spread throughout every tongue, tribe, and nation, leaving devastation in its wake. And the goodness of what used to be is survived only in faint echoes of Eden. As we turn to the Sermon on the Mount, my aim for us this day is to see it for what it is, the manifesto of a counter-revolution. As we will see, Jesus came to lead heaven's revolution on earth. A revolution to reclaim what was before the satanic rebellion. And the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of that heavenly revolution. So before we dig into it over the next months, 
years, y'all got spoiled with, with the Galatians study. Uh, one book of the Bible in four months, that ain't happening uh, over the next few years. So we'll see how long it takes us. But as we get into it, before we get into it, my aim this morning is for us to see the Sermon on the Mount's supreme, world-changing, revolutionary significance. Towards that end, I have two points. We're going to look at the leader of heaven's revolution and the strategy of heaven's revolution. Let's start with the leader himself. Look at this seemingly mundane verse, and I want us to see how significant it truly is. First, it says, seeing the crowds. So what we need to know within the flow of Matthew is that Jesus' fame has spread and he has amassed a significant following. Let me read for us the end of Matthew 4, which in many ways serves as the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria... And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So the picture is that Jesus, in Jesus, heaven has come to earth. Wherever he goes, the fall is literally coming undone as all of these people bring their afflictions and sufferings to meet his redemption and power. You see, at the beginning of Jesus' work on earth, we are given a preview of the end of his work, a moment at the beginning of his ministry that showcases the behold, I make all things new at the end of his ministry. And not surprisingly, people from everywhere are therefore flocking to Jesus. This is, this is an oasis of heaven on earth and people want in. And it's within this context of his popularity that we are meant to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is his response. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. The going up on the mountain is very significant. And I want to make sure we understand why that is. The mountain that he ascends is in the hill country of Galilee which served as a safe haven for Jewish revolutionaries in that day. You see, Jews were living under uh, oppression, dominance from Rome. Um, Very high taxation, um, strong limitations on their ability to practice their religion. The Jewish leaders were handpicked by Rome um, to, to make sure that they had Jews in charge that they know would do Rome's bidding. And most scandalous and outrageous of all, Caesar not the God of Israel, was declared their Lord. And so because of this opposition, there were constant murmurs, constant whispers about the potential of a Jewish revolt against Rome. And the area where these uh, potential revolutionaries would, were, were discussed, and, and at times even uh, revolutions organized, was this hillside country where Jesus finds himself here. Revolutionary leaders would hide in the caves of this area and crowds would come to them and they would climb one of these hills and preach their revolutionary messages against Rome. For example, one generation just before Jesus, Judas of Galilee, uh, sparked a failed resistance in this very same hill country where Jesus finds himself in our passage. So make the connection for a fuller picture of what exactly is going on here. Jesus' fame has spread 
way more than any other previous revolutionary. People are literally flocking to him from every corner of Syria. He has demonstrated miraculous power which has stirred this feverish expectation and hopefulness. He retreats to the Galilean hill country. He ascends a mountain. The crowds swarm to him. Everyone there would have interpreted this as a revolutionary moment. And the point I'm emphasizing in this sermon is that it absolutely was a revolutionary moment. Make no mistake, Jesus came to lead a revolution. But not just any revolution, the revolution. Heaven's revolution on earth. Just prior to our passage in Matthew 4, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And this is how that is described. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He viewed his arrival as the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And this message, his message was simple. You need to repent and join the new kingdom that is now among us. Let me explain all that kingdom of heaven stuff because it's very important. The story of scripture can be told through several different thematic plot lines. But one of the most significant, if not the most significant, is a kingdom theme. In our modern era of democracy, we don't naturally view things through a kingdom lens, but by and large, history is just the story of competing kingdoms. And from a biblical lens, history is actually just the story of two competing kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the rival kingdom of darkness, which, like I said, came onto the scene with the fall in Genesis 3. Now, this kingdom of darkness is what theologians call a parasitic kingdom, that language makes sense. A parasite cannot live on its own. Instead, it latches onto a host and it, and it takes from the host at the host's expense in order to grow and multiply. Well, the kingdom of darkness is a parasitic kingdom. It has no rightful realm of its own, but it is a perversion of God's realm. So when Satan tempted Eve, that was a satanic parasite entering into God's realm to take over the host of God's creation. And this is fallen history as we know it. God's good creation is sick, infected with a parasite growing and multiplying at the creation's expense. Well, what is promised in the Old Testament to King David specifically is that a king is going to come and lead a revolution to purge the world of this parasitic kingdom. He will take his rule as the rightful king, and he will reign and reestablish God's reign on earth. And creation will finally once again be as it ought to be. And then the prophets of Israel came and continually promised the coming of the king and his kingdom. And the psalmists long for the day of the king and his kingdom, like in our Old Testament reading today. After my sermon, go back and read Psalm 47, and you will see all of this playing out. All right, now return to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. The coming of Jesus is the coming of the rightful kingdom to reclaim what belongs to the rightful king. And his invitation, maybe probably a better way to say that is his demand, is that we are to repent. 
Repent of our complicity in this parasitic kingdom of darkness and join the kingdom of God, the rightful side of this cosmic battle. Let me quote C.S. Lewis, who sums it up really well. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love that picture of the Christian life. Sabotaging the kingdom of darkness in the name of King Jesus, the rightful king and ruler of the earth. So Jesus came to lead a revolt. A revolt of heaven on earth and the strategy of the strategy is a, a campaign of sabotage, sabotaging the works of darkness in the name of Jesus, which is what Jesus has ascended this revolutionary mount to unveil, his strategy of how we are to do this. So let's look now at the strategy of heaven's revolution. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is where we get our first clue that Jesus has come to lead an unconventional revolution. Remember the scene. Go back to the scene. Crowds from all over have swarmed to Jesus. We don't know the exact size, but it's huge. Matthew says, uh, from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, even beyond the Jordan. That is a significant following. Certainly greater than any other revolutionary has amassed up until that point. Rome was very controlling of these potential revolts within the empire. But it would appear as if Jesus' following has grown beyond Rome's control. And what this means is that they find themselves at a tipping point moment where if Jesus leveraged the momentum of his fame, this thing could get out of control and boil over into an all-out revolt against Rome. But notice what Jesus does instead. He sees the crowd, goes up onto the mountain, but he doesn't go up on the mountain to stand and deliver a rousing call to action against Rome. He sits down, the posture of a rabbi, and calls his disciples to him. Talk about anticlimactic. A frenzied, hope-filled crowd at his disposal, but he chooses to ignore the crowds in favor of teaching moment with his disciples. That's not how you defeat Rome. But the point, of course, is that Jesus is thinking much bigger than Rome. Rome is merely a kingdom of this world in subjection to the much greater kingdom of darkness. And so Jesus chooses instead to plant the first tiny seed of what will slowly, over many centuries, transcending kings and kingdoms of this world, eventually yield a great kingdom of God harvest. Elsewhere, Jesus explains it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a great tree. That's what Jesus is doing in our verse. Sitting down with 12 disciples to plant the tiniest grain of a mustard seed that he knows will eventually grow into a global revolution yielding a global redemption. And the way it works is this. He's going to teach them. 
And he's going to teach us through our study together the ways of his kingdom. Sermon on the Mount is to be viewed as the manifesto of his kingdom, of his revolution. And then as we discussed last week very strongly, his expectation is not just that we learn this, but that we actually go out and live it out. And his ways, which are upside down from the ways of this world, will then likewise turn the world upside down. So here's how the revolution unfolds. Think about the Beatitudes that we're going to start getting into. Into a world that is haughty in spirit, he sends forth the revolution of the poor in spirit. Into a world of power, he sends forth the revolution of the meek. Into a world of vengeance, he sends forth the revolution of the peacemakers. Into a world of perversion, he sends forth the revolution of the pure in heart. You get the point. The Sermon on the Mount is a strategy to reestablish his ways on earth through his followers. Do you remember at the very beginning of the Bible when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? Subdue is regal language, is it not? He said to them, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air of every living thing that moves on the earth. Subdue, rule over. He is talking to Adam and Eve as if they are kings and queens, which is precisely the point. From the very beginning, we were, we were created as viceroys of God's reign. Noble image bearers who rule and reign on our God's behalf according to our God's instructions such that the creation that belongs to him flourishes under his reign and gives him glory. But of course, as we already discussed, we ruined that plan. But what we need to understand, you have to understand this about fallen humanity. We are still kings and queens, subduing and ruling this world. Only that we subdue and rule on behalf of this rival parasitic kingdom, following the waves of the prince of darkness. And you need only to read history or turn on the news to see the devastation of that reign. But what Jesus is establishing here in in our passage is a strategy to resubdue creation. By recapturing God's intentions. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. If you want to know what life would have been like were it not for the fall, look no further than the life described in the Sermon on the Mount. And so let me sum up everything as simply as I can and then we'll get to application. Beginning with the disciples in our passage all the way up to this point in our room, to you in this room, the call is this. God has entrusted to you a sphere of sovereignty. Your home, your vocation, your neighborhood, your friendships, your school, your classroom, this little sphere of creation entrusted to your dominion. And you are to exercise that dominion according to the ways of the true king outlined here in his manifesto upon the mount. And in so doing, What you do is sabotage the rival kingdom of darkness and resubdue what rightfully belongs to King Jesus. One of the countries that was taken over by the communist revolution was Czechoslovakia. Communism did to Czechoslovakia what it always does, erase the goodness of that culture with the tyranny of communism. 
But in 1989, Czechoslovakians overthrew communism and took back their country and culture. But the revolution against communism in Czechoslovakia was a unique one. They call it the Velvet Revolution because it was a nonviolent, organic purging of communism from their land. One of the leaders of the Velvet Revolution, Vaclav Havel, was asked, how did you pull this off? This is his answer. We had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we went out to the streets of Prague embodying that truth, rejecting their lies, and communism had no choice but to fall. Brothers and sisters, that's the sort of revolution Jesus is initiating in our passage. Disciples who form a parallel society wherein we pray our prayers, sing our songs, confess our creeds, partake of a holy meal, study and internalize his manifesto on the mount, and then go out into the streets embodying this counter-revolution. And herein lies the brilliance of the strategy. How are you going to stop it? It is not hard to stop a conventional revolution. In fact, were Jesus to turn the crowds towards Rome, Rome would have crushed that rebellion with their unmatched military power. A weaponized revolution, a politicized revolution, a conventional revolution playing by conventional rules of power can and will be defeated by the powers of this world. But how do you stop followers of Jesus from following Jesus throughout every tongue, tribe, and nation? How do you stop a strategy that doesn't seek to conquer worldly kingdoms with conventional force, but seeks the redemption of worldly kingdoms with unconventional ethics? The answer, of course, is you can't stop that. Heaven's revolution is unstoppable even when it appears to be failing. And to prove that to us this morning, I need only to point you to the king of our revolution. Of course, Rome did eventually arrest him. And they mocked him with a crown of thorns. And they put a sign above his head while he was hanging, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. As if to say, behold, your pathetic king on our cross. Well, three days later, heaven responds with its own statement, behold, the king of kings risen from your execution. And then the king gathers these same disciples from our passage, and he tells them to go to every nation and teach them to obey what I commanded. Go into the world as bearers of my revolution, living out the manifesto of my religion, and invite everyone to join you. By the way, if you are not a follower of Jesus, this would be my moment to invite you to join us. What we want to do here is fix the world. And we'd love for you to join us in that. Follow Jesus who not only saves you, but saves the world. So, here we are today and now it's our turn. The torch of heaven's revolution has been passed to us. And before we get into the details of this revolutionary cause in the months to come, my aim for us this morning is to simply see ourselves within the cause. I want you to bring, here's what I want you to do by way of application. I want you to bring to mind the different realms that God has entrusted to you. Your home, your family, your office, friendships, your classroom, neighborhood, 
these different realms that God has given to you. Bring them to mind, and I want you to start imagining them differently than you probably do. I want you to literally imagine yourself as kings and queens of those dominions, because that's what you are. Jesus is king, but your life is the scepter of his reign. Heaven reigns on earth through you. Does that not embolden your seemingly mundane life? A life that perhaps you are tempted to even view as worthless and meaningless. O kings and queens of heaven, your life is the opposite. You are ruling and reigning over a dominion in the name of Jesus. Every, every moment of every day is a revolutionary moment within your sphere. That little sphere that God has entrusted to you, this cosmic battle is playing out. And every single time within that sphere, you say, I'm going to do what Jesus told me to do. You are saying, this belongs to King Jesus. Every moment, every day, a revolutionary moment, an opportunity to participate in heaven's unstoppable revolution led by a revolutionary king who has risen from the dead. Let me pray. Embolden us, O God, to go forth with this high, high calling and nobility to see our lives for what they are, an opportunity to carry the torch of heaven's revolution Beneath the banner of our King, we need your power to do that. We need your strength to do that. We need your grace to do that for where we failed. And so we come to this table to once again remind us of your gospel, our need, that we might leave here emboldened to carry out what you have called us to do. So would you grant that in Jesus' name? Amen.